Yeah. Let's get this web conference underway. We'll start with a karakia. Kuna hia te pō, te pō whiri marama. Toma kia te ao, te ao whatitangata. Tātai ki runga, tātai ki raro, tātai ahurau, omie, huie, taekie. Kia ora tātou and haere mai, welcome to the Alpine Fault online field trip, which is supported by EQC. And right now we are sitting in a little B&B in Franz Josef. And you might be able to see some of the webcam action as Andrew, the other learns teacher, films his way into where we are sitting. Um, not a lot to see outside because it's a little bit wet. There's mist clinging to the hills. It's stopped raining just for the moment. Um, but the rain is supposed to really set in later oh. today. <laughs> Um, so we're hoping that we'll be able to get some videoing done before it rains. Andrew's just going to show you a bit of a view out, out the door here. Um, we've had some rain this morning, but I managed to get, get out for a wee jog before it started really persisting down. Mm -hmm. So it's very nice to be in Taipatini, Westland. Love it over on the coast. And it's the perfect place to talk about natural hazards particularly earthquakes, which we are focusing on for this field trip, the Alpine Fault. And Carolyn, once a geologist, um, can you tell us a bit more about your work? Yeah, well, as Shelley said, yeah, I did my geology degree quite a few years ago now. And then I went out into the world and worked in the mining industry in a gold mine. And then a few years later, I went back and did some more research about earthquakes and how they can affect our communities and our places and our people. And so my, my research now is about uh, uh, hazard science. It's about how um, hazards can affect our, our places and our people. And it's awesome to have Carolyn as our guide for this trip, along with Alice, who is a more of a social scientist, and she's involved in communication around hazards and getting communities more resilient to natural hazards, more prepared. So welcome along to our speaking school. Great to have Island School with us this morning. And we've got someone that definitely wants to say hello. Oh, oh loves it on the West Coast. He loves the rain. He feels right at home, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah, likewise, Maya, the Lens Ambassador, has met a few of her friends already. Cheeky Kias. Um, she, she loves it on the West Coast as well. So Walt says a big hello. Missing you guys. So we'll get underway with our questions. And if you can say your first name, that's really helpful. We know then who we're talking to. And if you're, you're nice and close to the laptop, that also helps as well. All righty, we'll get underway. Can we have question number one, please? So my, my name is Hector. Um, my question is, so we've watched animations of P waves and S waves. And I was just wondering what the form um, how well the formula you, you use to find out um, the distance where the where the earth of the earthquake the distance of the epicenter of an earthquake from a specific point so that you could pretty much do that from three points and then find the exact epicenter. Great question, Hector. You've done some Yoda. You've done some homework on this, I can tell. That's awesome. Thank you for your question. So I don't know if your teacher happened to have a slinky 
in your classroom the other day when you were talking about earthquakes because a slinky is a really good way to visualize how how uh, waves move out from the epicenter of an earthquake so you know a metal slinky if you push it like that what happens is it starts to move a bit like that on the horizontal doesn't it but then if you slide it more like a snake that's what a s wave looks like so the first one is the p wave the push wave that moves off first and then there's a bit of a delay and then the S wave starts to follow. And so at a seismometer, which is, you know, we have a network of seismometers across New Zealand that helps us understand where earthquakes are located because each seismometer will pick up the P wave and then it'll pick up the S wave. And we know that P waves and S waves uh, travel at different speeds. And so the formula that you're after is distance equals velocity times the time that it takes for those waves to arrive. I hope that helps. For the weight. Distance equals velocity by time. It's a bit tricky, isn't it? That's just a very simple way of expressing it too. There are some very complex formulas that you could use as well. Mm, and that's where I think GNS really cool because it shows you where any earthquakes are. And we felt one the other night and you could see it on GeoNet as well. And it does all the complicated mm. maths and gathers the data from different places and things and, and pinpoints the location. But it can't do that instantly. It's got to grab the data from Yeah, it does. It takes us. It's pretty quick these days. I think less than two minutes. You'd have wow. a pretty good location on most earthquakes now. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Uh, great to see, I think it's Canary School with us again today. Morena. Good to have you listening in and hopefully you've got some questions for us at the end. But we'll carry on with our questions from Island School. Question number two, please. Hi, my name is Theo. This is my question. With scientists, geologists and seismologists, how do their jobs differ and how do they work together on earthquakes in New Zealand? Yeah. Another good question. Thanks, Theo. Um, okay, so I would say that a scientist, uh, scientists do all sorts of different things. It's a very broad term. So it might include people who do physics or chemistry or, or, um, or social science as well, like geography or, um, you know, uh, philosophy. Everyone's a scientist who does that kind of work. But when you're talking about geologists and seismologists, those two types of scientists do uh, geoscience in other words they look at the natural world around them so a geologist will understand rocks and landscapes and landforms and the way that the the landscape has been formed by different processes a seismologist looks more about earthquakes specifically so they'll look at the way that earthquakes happen the waves that come out from those like we've just talked about and everything to do with earthquakes really so that's what a seismologist does Mm, it's really interesting to hear how specific certain areas of science can get. And I've heard of, mm. of um, geophysicists and yes. all, you know, there's all sorts of terms for the specific things that uh, people end up studying. Really good question. Question number three now, please. Hi, my name is Brian and this is my question. I've been to Franz Joseph and I was wondering what would happen to the glacier when a large earthquake comes. Mm, yeah, I've, I've wondered that too. Good mm. question, Brian. Yeah, great question. Um, so I guess as you can imagine, when you shake the mountains or you shake a glacier, it's going to affect it, isn't it? And what we see in the mountains is that um, lots of landslides will come down out of the mountains because 
when they're shaking really hard, that's what's going to happen. The gravity is going to work on those rocks and they're going to, some of them are going to fall off and, and create landslides. And in a glacier, it's a bit the same because ice, when it's shaken, it might have some material fall off it as well. As well as that, you also get landslides coming down off the hills around the glacier and landing on top of the glacier as well. And that can affect, if, the, if it's a big enough landslide, the weight of that glacier, and it's going to sort of feel quite heavy underneath the landslide, and that might change the way the glacier behaves as well. So it might mean that bits start to fall off the front of the glacier, and it might retreat more quickly for a period of time after a big earthquake. Yeah, great question. Mm, and you might have heard of avalanches and big avalanches happening um, in the mountains after mm. earthquakes. I remember the, the big earthquake in, in Nepal and the mm. big 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 avalanches that happened and particularly at Everest and there were lots of people climbing there and there were avalanches and it wasn't too good at all yeah that's right yeah, so we, yeah it's not just the shaking of the earthquake but it's those secondary effects as well mm. so really thinking about it these questions are brilliant well done yeah okay next question please hi my name is Brian and this is my question what depth has the earthquakes on the Alpine fault been and how have they affected the landscape at St Joseph in the past all right good question again so I think if you were with us yesterday you might remember that I was saying the very center of the earth is really 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 hot and as you move out from the center of the earth it gets cooler and when you get to the very outside part of the earth, it's, it's what we call brittle. In other words, it's like a, the eggshell on the outside of an egg, it will crack and break. So the first, the top 10 kilometers of the earth is what we call the brittle zone. And that's where earthquakes happen because rocks will break and move. If you get deeper than 10 to 15 kilometers from the surface, it starts to get a bit more like toffee and a bit hotter and a bit stickier and earthquakes don't happen much you know down in, the, in that kind of depth below the surface so on the alpine fault most of the earthquakes happen between about five and ten maybe a bit deeper kilometers below the surface um what was the second part of the part of the question how have they affected the landscape well i mean the landscape here is all about uh past earthquakes really the, the fact that we've got the Southern Alps is all because we have this plate boundary that goes through here. The Alpine Fault is, is the plate boundary and the movement across that plate boundary is pushing up the, the Southern Alps. They're getting higher and we're getting this horizontal movement as well. And so Franz Joseph has these beautiful mountains rising up from, from the coast and that's because of the plate boundary and the Alpine Fault. So without the fault, we wouldn't have these beautiful mountains that we're sitting right next to right now. Mm, providing us with stunning scenery and the rain. Yeah. <laughs> you, you guys will be sitting in Christchurch in the sunshine and the rain shadow while we're sitting in the rain. So you can find out more about why that happens by um, doing a bit of research online. Um, it's called the orographic effect. Mm -hmm. And you might already know about it, but it's a great example today. I can see in your classroom sitting in sunshine while we're in the mist and the rain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question, please. Hi, this is Theo again. This is my question. Does the depth of the PNS waves and or the depth of the earthquake affect the time it takes the shaking to reach a certain point? Yes. Yeah, excellent question. 
Yep, and so yes, it does. It will uh, affect the time that it takes to reach a certain point. And so if you imagine a seismometer, let's say it's sitting in the back of your school, you've got a seismometer there. We have an earthquake on the Alpine Fold over here, and it's gonna take some time for those seismic waves to reach you over there. Uh, we know that seismic waves, they move, just imagine this, at a speed of about five kilometers per second. Per wow. second. That's how fast they're moving through the earth. And so you can do a bit of maths just in your own head if you wanted to, if it's 200 kilometers or so from here to where you are, and they're traveling at five kilometers per second, might be a bit less than 200 kilometers. Anyway, you can do some pretty easy maths to work out how long it might take, how many seconds it might take for the shaking to reach you. So yeah, that's a, that's a good question. We know how fast seismic waves move roughly. It depends on the type of rock and the type of ground that they're passing through. But that's how long it would take for an earthquake to, to move across the landscape. Incredible. And next question, please. Hi, my name is Maya, and this is my question. When you drill into the fault line, how far down do you go? What type of rocks are you looking for? And what information do they give you? Yeah, good. So you might have watched the video. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you saw the video about the deep fault drilling that's been happening over here on the West Coast. Um, firstly, I guess we don't drill into faults very much because it's really expensive. This is the first, the first drilling ever onto the fault um, happened back here in 2011, and they only drilled three holes because it was so expensive to do that work. So anyway, the, the idea is that they drill down until they reach the Alpine Fault and they can look at the rocks as they, as they drill down into that hole and they can put some sort of special science instruments down into the hole as well to help understand what's happening down, down below the surface. Now, one of the holes went down about 120 metres and then it hit the Alpine Fault underneath the surface. And so it got down to this rock, which if you looked at yesterday at the video that's just gone up today when we were at Gaunt Creek, it was a very uh, minty green colored rock. Now that rock sits right on the Alpine Fault and it's where uh, there's been a lot of heat when the fault moves. Like if you rub your hands together now, what happens is your hands feel really warm, don't they? That's called, that's called frictional heat. And when a fault moves, it gets really hot and it kind of cooks up the rocks right next to the fault and it crushes them and it sends lots of water and fluid through that fault. And that's what turned those rocks green. And so when they drill down into the Alpine, Alpine Fault, they're looking for those green rocks so they know they've reached the fault. And they look at those special rocks and, and look at them in a microscope and they can tell different things about it. And it was fascinating to see that rock. And, and it was really, really, really crumbly. So not, not too stable at all. Yeah. And we're now up to question number seven, please. As the tectonic plates rub together, will they eventually break apart and wear down so that in the distant future, we may not have earthquakes because all the stress has gone? I can see you've really thought about that. I can too, yeah. Well, I guess the first thing to say on that is that our planet is the master recycler because at these plate boundaries, stuff is being recycled and reused all the time. Sometimes the plates 
are moving past each other like that really, really slowly, very slowly, but over millions of years, that movement, you know, it's, it's a lot over, the, over a long time. Sometimes the plates are pushing against each other and then one will go down underneath the other one and just gradually move down like that. And sometimes they're squeezing together and they're pushing up mountains. Now, all of those processes are always happening and they've been going on for 4.5 billion years. Wow. And so it's never going to stop happening. This is just what the earth does. It's the natural processes that we have going on all around us all the time, just very, very slowly compared to our lifespans. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And question eight. Yeah, please. Hi, my name is Soren, and this is my question. Can the stress on the tectonic plates just wear off without there actually being an earthquake? And do other earthquakes in the area reduce... Um, yeah, sorry. Do other earthquakes in the area reduce the stress on the Alpine Belt? Yeah. That's a really thoughtful question. Well done. Yeah, very thoughtful. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. Um, so, hang on, just let me get back to where we were. Stress. Okay, so this is actually a quite new area of science, and a lot of work's been happening off the east coast of the North Island in what we call the Hikurangi Trench. Now, that's a big subduction zone where one plate is diving down underneath the North Island. That's the Pacific plate going under the Australian plate. And scientists noticed this really interesting thing where uh, the seismometers would suddenly go into this kind of tremor situation. So instead of registering one earthquake, you would find uh, seismometers were receiving these little shakes that went on for days and days at a time. And they realized that this thing, it was sort of like a slow earthquake. And they actually called it a slow earthquake. And this is releasing energy over not just seconds like a normal earthquake, but actually over days or weeks. And so this has been really interesting because what it says is that some of the stress on the Hikarangi Trench is being released by these slow earthquakes, which is reducing the kind of the seismic stress. And that might mean that parts of that plate boundary won't produce big earthquakes the way we might expect, but they're releasing this energy more gradually. And that's a, that's a good thing. Um, on the Alpine Fault, we don't have a lot of that happening. The Alpine Fault is storing up its energy and it regularly kind of produces earthquakes that re release that stress. Now, the other question about other earthquakes around the Alpine Fault may be reducing the stress. Because the Alpine Fault's so big, it, uh, you know, it's 600 kilometers long and it goes down underneath the ground, so it's quite a, quite a big fault. The earthquakes that sort of happen, like the one we had a couple of days ago, that was a magnitude 4.5. That's just a tiny, tiny amount of seismic energy compared to what would be produced during a magnitude 8 earthquake. And so those sorts of earthquakes don't really do much about reducing the stress on the Alpine Fault. Really interesting. Thanks, Carolyn. And now it's question nine. Hello, my name is Darren and this is my question. How do you calculate accurately what the uplift to Southern Alps is each year? Kia ora, Darren. Kia ora. Yeah. Um, we, did, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, that scientists and surveyors in New Zealand have this, um, this really clever way of understanding how our landscape's moving using these, um, what they call geodetic strain markers. And so the, these are sort of um, scientific instruments that are 
concreted into the ground and they can't move and they are always being monitored all the time through many many decades to see how the how the landscape is changing in New Zealand so that's that's one way of understanding how elevation how the, the mountains might be going up and down but we also have a pretty good understanding of the way the plate boundary is behaving and we know that it's moving in towards New Zealand from the Pacific uh, plate at about 30 millimeters a year and it's pushing up the southern Alps at about 10 millimeters a year but because of all this rain we get over here the tops of the mountains are eroding all the time as well so even though you've got a bit of uplift happening you're also getting a bit of down happening too because the erosion keeps going on in the in the mountains I hope that answers your question we didn't have that erosion, we'd have mountains just about as big as the Himalayas. Yeah, we would. <laughs> to be pretty bizarre on an, a small island. Okay, question 10 now, please. Oh, my name is Felix and this is my question. I climbed up to Mueller Hut and Mount Olivia. How do the rocks I was climbing on compare to the rocks and at, um, at Franz Joseph? Mm. Good question. I wish I had some rocks with me to show you what what it looks like. I've got um, I've got some at home. I could have held up and showed you what what those different rocks look like. But I'll try and explain it. So a big part of the South Island is made up of this rock type called schist. I don't know if you've ever seen schist, but normally it's like a stripy kind of black and white, and it's got lines through it. So when you're out towards Mount Cook, you might have seen some of these stripy rocks. But as you move in towards the, the Alpine Fault, so let's say you're heading west from Mount Cook, those rocks change a little bit. And the reason for that is because those schist rocks are basically, um, they were um, buried deeper into the earth. They were cooked up a little bit more by that temperature that I was telling you about, how it gets hotter as you go deeper into the ground. And that changes the way the rocks look. So some of the minerals in that rock, they change. Um, and so as you move towards the Alpine Fault, the rocks tend to get a bit darker in color, a bit blacker, and those minerals start to stretch out and because they're, they're under more pressure and they, those little lines of, of white get squeezed out and pinched. And so by the time you get into the Alpine Fault, the rocks are looking quite black. And then right next to the fault, it's that minty green cataclasite. And awesome to see that you're thinking about what you've seen, good, good observation skills, which mm. is um, important for science work. So well done. And good to hear that you've been out and about in the mountains too. Question number 11 now, please. My name is Mickey and this is my question. In the future, could we get a magnitude nine earthquake? How do you know the magnitude of the Alpine full earthquakes before Europeans came to New Zealand? Mm, awesome. So you've almost got two questions there and they're both excellent. So maybe for the first part, could we get a magnitude nine earthquake in New Zealand? So yes, we could. Um, I was just mentioning before the Hikurangi margin, which is the plate boundary off the east coast of, of Napier Hastings, the east yeah, of the North Island. Now that plate boundary is a big thing and it's diving down underneath, um, underneath the North Island. And scientists would, would say to us that, yes, it has the potential to produce an earthquake bigger than magnitude nine. Down here on the Alpine Fault, 
we know that this fault would would be it would be highly unlikely, almost impossible, for the Alpine Fault to produce an earthquake as big as that. And the reason for that, it's a bit sort of sciencey, really, but um, it's because of the size of the fault. So when you let's imagine this piece of paper, um, we always think of the fault as a line. So you know, if I drew my finger across there, that's the sort of what you would see on the map, and it's like a line on the surface of the Earth. But of course, the fault is like a plane. So we've got the sheet of paper, that's the fault plane. And the size of that fault plane uh, will determine how big an earthquake can be produced off it, really, because all of that fault plane moves and the energy comes off the fault plane. And so if you have a really big fault, like the Hikurangi margin, that can produce a really big earthquake. The Alpine fault's a bit smaller than that. So we, we know that it won't produce something as big as magnitude nine. Um, and how do we know the magnitude of earthquakes before Europeans arrived? Absolutely great question. And we do that by looking in the field. So scientists go out into the field and they're looking for evidence of past earthquakes. And there are lots of different ways you can do that. One of the ways is to look at trees. And because on the West Coast here, there are lots and lots of big old trees. And when trees get shaken by an earthquake, it actually damages them. And sometimes it actually kills the trees. And so the scientists went out and looked around and they saw, uh, they actually cored into the trees and they saw the tree rings and they could date how old those trees were. And many of the trees showed a problem that they'd had in 1717 AD. And other evidence that they found in the landscape told the scientists that the last earthquake was in 1717. It damaged a lot of trees right up and down the coast. It killed some of them as well. And so that helped to paint the picture of a big earthquake that happened back in, you know, 300 years ago. And that the evidence was right up and down the coast. So it was a big earthquake. And that told them that it was probably something like a magnitude eight uh, sized earthquake. Ooh. Very interesting. Excellent. Oh, well, thank you very much, Island School, for those quality questions. And thanks, Carolyn, for such great answers. Um, we're now going to stick around for just a few minutes to answer any questions that you might have. Um, so you can type those in the chat window. So you can scroll down to the bottom, see the chat bubble, click on that and open up your chat pod and fire away with any questions that you might have. I'll start with one to do with S&P waves from Theo earlier. So if you get a really shallow earthquake compared to a really deep earthquake, when the S&P waves go out, mm -hmm. if it's a shallow earthquake, the S&P waves would arrive earlier at a location than a deep one because they don't have to travel as far? That's right. Yeah, exactly right. So if, if you were to look at a seismometer, when it prints out its little movement, because, you know, most of the time the seismometer is going da -da 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 -da, like that. When there's an earthquake, you see that signature change. So when the P waves arrive, you get a little signature. And then when the S waves arrive, you get a bigger one because the shaking waves produce a bigger signature on the seismometer. And the distance between the P wave arrival and the S wave arrival tells you something about how far those waves have traveled and the time it's taken to get there. And then when you've got multiple seismometers, you can do that calculation quite easily. So the other one you talked yesterday, like if this is New Zealand or the Australian plate, Australia over there, and the Pacific plate is diving under, yep. but south of New Zealand, the Australian plate mm -hmm. is coming over the top. Mm 
And I believe up in the north, it's coming over the top again. So is that unusual in the world? And does that mean with that twisting that it's way more forces than if the whole thing was going under? Yeah, I mean, we are in quite a unique situation here. I mean, it, there are other complex tectonic plate boundaries in the world, but we do have a particularly tricky one. And that, as you say, Barry, we've got the Pacific plate diving down under the North Island. And then out in Fiordland, the Australian plates going underneath the Pacific plate. So those are two opposing subduction zones linked by the Alpine Fault and the Marlborough Fault uh, system. So that's like a big kind of pivot point really between these two big subduction zones. So it is complicated. Uh, it's not the most complicated in the world probably, but it, yeah, it does mean we're in quite an interesting tectonic environment. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. And Canary's called like to know how deep the Alpine Fault is. So I guess there's differences because it's 600 kilometres long, but... Yeah. Yeah, great question. Um, so these this type of um, science called geophysics is really interesting because they do this, these sorts of measurements of um, the way... Uh, so they can do some science where they basically put... Um, some energy down into the ground and then they can observe where it bounces off different things at under the surface. And so they've observed that the Alpine Fault goes down about 40 kilometres underneath the surface. Um, as I said before, most of the earthquakes happen in the top 10 or 15 kilometres of that, but it is seen to go right down under the Southern Alps at about the angle of 45 degrees. So, you know, something like, maybe like that. So this is the surface where we are at Franz Josef and the fault goes down 45 degree angle for about 40 kilometers and then it flattens out like that down very deep under the surface. So there's a second question from Canary. Can earthquakes occur in the core? So mm. I presume that's the, the core, core of the earth. Yeah. Um, no, not really. They can get pretty deep. You can get earthquakes that are sort of two, 250 kilometers deep or maybe even a bit more than that. But you don't get earthquakes down in the core. And that's basically because it's a liquid when it or sort of a really sticky toffee kind of liquid um, texture down in the very core of the earth. In fact, I think the very core turns into a solid again. It's quite complicated. But the area in between is kind of like this big like toffee kind of texture, which won't develop, it won't create earthquakes. It's only until you get up into the, the outer parts of the, um, of the world or, or the earth that earthquakes will be uh, caused. Mm. And that all thinks, and that also like to know what is the highest point on the Alpine Fault? So if it went through the middle of our Raki, Mount Cook, that would be the highest point, but it doesn't go right through the middle of the summit of our Raki. So yeah. where is this? So, so the Alpine Fault is west of the Southern Alps, okay? So um, we're sitting here in Franz Josef and we're basically right on the, the Alpine Fault now. And that's where it goes down underneath the mountains. So it's not actually coming out above up high in the mountains of the Southern Alps at all. It's actually happening, it, it sort of comes out right along the flat uh, of the West Coast before it turns into the mountains. So the Alpine Fault is, is on the flat right, right along the West Coast. I hope that makes sense. Cool. So, it looks like we haven't got any other oh. questions, but it's been a pleasure talking to everybody this morning and fantastic to hear the questions that you've come up with. They've um, certainly 
had lots of thought put into them and you've done your research. So well done. I think we've got a few budding scientists in I that think classroom. So. Absolutely. So well done, people. And remember, you can join us again tomorrow at 9.15 for the last web conference if you've got some more questions. Um, otherwise, we'll head out into the rain <laughs> and have a look at what might happen in Franz Joseph if there is an Alpine Fault earthquake and what we can do beforehand to reduce those impacts. So thanks very much, Carolyn, and thanks to everyone listening today. And now we can unmute microphones and all say a big goodbye. Have a great day, everyone. Bye. 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 Thank you. Thank you very much, Shelley. That was awesome. Enjoy your week.